0: Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm two. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated.
1: Morning, in Christ community, my name is Brent and I'm one of the pastors here at the Leewood campus. I hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend. Welcome to all the kids who are here with us today on this Worship Together Sunday. Uh, I want to apologize up front if I sound a little sick. I woke up with a, a sore throat this morning, uh, but I'm going to press on. Uh, when you're the third-string preacher, you don't have a lot of other options, so uh, we're just going to we're going to run with it. So, all right, <laughs> hey, all right, all right. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, let's get serious. <laughs> In recent years, the world has seemed more chaotic than it used to be. You know, it's less less predictable, less stable. It seems like people are more anxious about pretty much everything, and and I know I am. One of the things I've longed for recently is a return to normal. If things could just get back to the way that they were, I would feel better. Does that resonate with anyone? Maybe what we've been experiencing in the United States in recent years is actually more normal than we realize. After all, most people throughout history have lived with incredible uncertainty, economic uncertainty, you know, will it rain enough for my crops to grow this year? Political instability, unstable and unjust regimes, wars, epidemics, none of these things are new or unusual in the grand scheme of human history. So this Advent season, uh, I'm trying to stop longing for a return to normal and instead find confidence in something in the midst of uncertainty. It's actually one of the great things about Advent season that we celebrate each year. Each year, we're reminded of what God did in the past, and it gives us confidence about what God will do in the future. Seeing how God fulfilled his promises in the past gives us hope, not wishful thinking, but but confidence, that God will continue to fulfill his promises in the future. And today we kick off our Advent series called The Promised King And we'll spend the next five weeks exploring this theme of a promised king in the book of Psalms. Now, why the Psalms? Because from beginning to end, the Psalms are a book of hopeful confidence in the midst of great uncertainty. The Psalms praise God for his loving action on our behalf. They cry out to God in anguish, confident that God is not deaf to our cries. They confess sin, knowing that that our God is gracious and compassionate and eager to forgive. And nearly half of the psalms are attributed to David. And many of those psalms explain the circumstances in his life when they were written. They have these little superscripts up near the top. And most of them are actually from pretty dark times in his life. Here, Here are a few examples. Psalm 3, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Psalm 18, when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies. Psalm 34, when Abimelech drove him out. Psalm 56, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Psalm 59, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Psalm 63, when he was in the wilderness of Judah. You get the idea. None of the Psalms say something like, when David was king and all was good in his world. No, when David was running for his life, that's when he sits down to pen a psalm. I think about it. It seems like the most spiritually vibrant times in David's life were not when he was securely on the throne in Israel. It was when he was in the wilderness, running for his life from enemies who were out to get him. David's spiritual vitality was grounded in his confidence that God would deliver him out of trouble and fulfill his promises to him. And these prayers were so powerful and inspired that people started collecting them and arranging them into into the book we call Psalms. We don't know exactly when the book reached its final form, but we know that someone, or probably a group of people, arranged them very intentionally. This isn't just a random collection of 150 poems. It has an intentional design to it from beginning to end. And the way the book is designed actually points forward, out of a dark and chaotic and unpredictable period of Israel's history, to a future in which God would intervene in history and establish his promised king on the throne. And we see this hope for God's coming king right at the beginning of the book. Psalms 1 and 2 are set apart as a two-part introduction to the rest of the book. And they introduce some of the major themes that will run through the rest of it. Psalm 1 lays out two paths. The path of the wicked, which ultimately leads to death. And the path of the righteous, which leads to fruitfulness and blessing. And then Psalm 2 reminds us that in spite of appearances to the contrary... God is in control of history, and he has set his king, his Messiah, anointed one, on the throne. And this gives us hope through the rest of the book, because if you've read the Psalms, you know there are going to be a lot of ups and downs. They're going to go to some dark places. But even in the midst of those dark places, we remember that Psalm 2 has given us hope that God is in control, and he will carry out his plan. We still don't have certainty or the promise for normal any more than David did, but what we learn here is that we can have confidence in God's plan, God's king. So if you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Let's dig in and see how this works. Starting in verse 1. this is Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The so Psalm 2 starts with a chaotic scene of nations raging and peoples plotting. It opens with a picture of people who are opposed to God. Thinking back to Psalm 1, they remind us of the wicked of Psalm 1 who will not stand in the judgment. And there are all these little links back to Psalm 1 in this psalm, which is really interesting. And one of them is this word plot. It's, it's actually the same word that was translated as meditate in Psalm 1. It's the Hebrew word ha-gah, And It literally means to murmur or growl. So in, in Psalm 1, the righteous person meditates hagah on God's law. If you're meditating on his word, you might be reciting it or murmuring it. Quietly under your breath. But here in Psalm 2, it's not a righteous person reciting God's law. It's a crowd that has gathered for the purpose of plotting against God. The murmuring, the the haggaing that you hear is the buzz in the air as they plot together, whispering in their corner away from listening ears, or or so they think. What are they talking about? So verses 2 to 3 make clear. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is common in Hebrew poetry, that the image changes slightly from one verse to the next. We started with the, with the big picture of nations and peoples plotting. And as the next verse develops the idea, it also drills down and becomes more specific. So the nations' rage and the peoples' plot, and now, now more specifically, the kings of the earth take counsel together. It's like they're, they're huddling together, making their plans. The kings of the earth, they've thrown together a summit, and the topic for discussion is the overthrow of their overlord. Or you could think of it as palace intrigue, where the, where the king's officials have gathered together to quietly discuss their plans for a coup. If you've seen the movie The Lion King, this is Scar and the hyenas plotting the overthrow of Mufasa. These rulers or officials, they don't like their king's rule and and they want to break free of it because they want to rule their own way. They want to consolidate their own power and to pursue and promote their own glory. Now, there's an important detail in verse 2 that we shouldn't miss. The kings and rulers have come together to plot against the Lord and against his anointed. This is important. Who is the second person, the Lord's anointed? The word anointed is the Hebrew word Messiah, in its original context, it could have referred to the anointed Israelite king who was ruling in Jerusalem, first David and then his descendants. But the psalm also indicates that there's more to this character, as we'll see in a minute. For now, let's just tuck that away, that the palace rebellion here is against God and his anointed ruler. And so these kings of the earth are huddled together in their corner and are whispering their plans To one another, but but they're not out of earshot. God is listening, and his response is a bit surprising. Verse 4 He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. This plot, this conspiracy against the Lord, it, it doesn't bother him. He's so unconcerned about it that he laughs, it's so pitiful that it's funny. He holds them in derision. Other translations say that he, he scoffs at them or ridicules them, mocks them, or, or even that he makes fun of them. This is like when Elijah squared off against the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You, you remember that story? When the prophets are unable to get their God to answer them, Elijah mocks them. He says, try yelling louder. You know, maybe he's just deep in thought or he's asleep. For Elijah, there's, there's no need to fear. We also, we also don't need to fear what God laughs at. If my kids see something that scares them, but I laugh at it, they know they don't need to be afraid. The prophets of Baal, they, they seem scary in Elijah's time. In the kings of the earth of Psalm 2, they seem scary. We're talking about powerful people with global influence, but when we see our father laughing at their foolish schemes, we know that we don't need to be afraid. So God, so God laughs, but it's not playful laughter. Verse five, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Wow, that, that's intense. It's important to remember that God's wrath here is an appropriate response to the situation. You know, this, this is Simba at the end of the Lion King, burning with anger at his uncle, for usurping the throne. This is righteous anger, and the kings of the earth are right to be terrified. I know the idea of God's wrath can be difficult, but God's wrath is his appropriate response to evil. Miroslav Volf is a, a Croatian theologian, and he's written a lot about, uh, about faith in the context of the war and genocide that took place in the former Yugoslavia in, at the end of the 20th century. Here's what he wrote in his book, Free of Charge. It's a bit of a longer quote. I'm going to read it to you. He says this, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. So what happens when the kings of the earth get their way? We end up with a world like the one that Wolf described, a world of violence and chaos and evil. And there's a lot more that could be said about evil and God's response to it. And if you're struggling with this idea, and and, and I think most of us probably do at times, I want to invite you to reach out. Reach out to someone here at the church or in your community group or one of the pastors. We would love to talk to you about it. The picture we get in Psalm 2 is that God sees evil, he judges it, and he proclaims that he has set his own king on Zion. And Zion is the mountain where Jerusalem is located. The king referred to here is the same person as the anointed, the Messiah, back in verse 3. And again, in the original context when the psalm was written, it could have referred to the human king, to David and his descendants. But what's interesting to me is that at the time when the psalms were compiled into one finalized collection, there wasn't a descendant of David on the throne. By that time, Israel was a conquered nation under the thumb of foreign empires. At that time, there was no Israelite king in Jerusalem. And yet they were so sure of the God who said, I have set my king on Zion, that they put this psalm right at the beginning in the introduction of the collection. It gave them hope that even when, when things look bleak, out of control, uncertain, that God was still in control and that he would fulfill his promises. They would have read this verse in light of 2 Samuel 7 where God made a promise to David of an everlasting kingdom. They knew that God keeps his Promises, and so this verse gave them hope that God would not abandon them and that some way, somehow, God would make good on that promise. They read this verse with the future in mind, and that's where the next three verses go. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The first thing to notice here is that the son is now speaking. He says, I will tell tell of the decree. This is what the Lord said to me, you are my son. This is the third title we've been given for this character. He was called the Anointed One or Messiah in verse 2. In verse 6, he was the king that God has placed on the throne in Zion. And now this messianic king is identified as God's son. And again, the background of this verse is 2 Samuel 7. Listen to what God said to David in that chapter. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God says to David, I will raise up one of your descendants, and he's going to have an everlasting kingdom. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And Psalm 2 is drawing on that same theme, that same promise. In Second Samuel 7, the promise was limitless in terms of time, and an everlasting kingdom. It will go on and on into eternity, And in Psalm 2, the kingdom is limitless in terms of space. God says to the Son, I will give the nations and the ends of the earth as your possession. So the scope of the Son's rule couldn't be any bigger than this. Now let's take stock of where we are. Psalm 2 has given us a picture of the kings of the earth plotting to overthrow the rule of God. And the early readers of the Psalm would have had specific rulers in mind, kings of powerful empires like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt, empires that dwarfed Israel's kingdom in size and global influence. And in verse 9, those powerful empires are likened to fragile pottery. They can be thrown to the ground and shattered into countless pieces. From a human perspective, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, those empires were scary, and there's no doubt that they did real damage. Wars, wars, forced deportation and displacement of people groups. They forced weaker local kingdoms to pay exorbitant sums as tribute. But God says, when the time comes, I can shatter them into a million pieces, just like that. Because while the kings and empires of the earth make their plans, what's what's God been doing up in heaven? Mocking, laughing. And this all reminds me of a familiar story about the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. We read this story at Christmas time, at church probably every Advent season, but I want us to view it today through the lens of Psalm 2. This is Luke, Luke 2 starting in verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, You have Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, the the most powerful man on earth, making his plans. And Augustus was no ordinary Roman emperor. Listen to this description from Bible scholar James Edwards. Augustus built the Roman Forum, founded libraries, sponsored lavish spectacles for the populace, and boasted that he had found Rome built in brick, but left it in marble. Augustus was the first emperor to encourage a cult to deify his name and reign. Ancient inscriptions identify Augustus as God, Son of God, and Savior. And they associate him with peace, hope, and good news. Augustus inherited a city of brick, but passed it on as a city of marble. It's a great metaphor for his wealth and splendor, from brick to marble. And he encourages a religion of emperor worship. People treat him as a god and worship him and make sacrifices to him. He rules the greatest empire the world has ever known up to that time. And yet, the only reason that most of us here today have ever heard of Caesar Augustus is because of Luke chapter 2. Here in Luke 2, he's consolidating his power. He's, He's scheming. He orders a census to be taken, probably for the purpose of taxation. He needs to know how many people there are so he can squeeze as much cash out of them as possible. Turning Rome into a city of marble is not cheap, and Augustus needs funds. And so Augustus, who exalts himself as the son of God, has his plan, his plot. What do you think God is doing in heaven all along? Probably laughing Because God is going to use Caesar Augustus' scheme to get an obscure couple on the outskirts of Caesar's empire to Bethlehem in order to fulfill an ancient prophecy. This is Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So Joseph and Mary, they make their way to Bethlehem for the census, not because Caesar had a plan, but because God had a plan. And Caesar may think he's big and powerful, that he calls the shots and that no one can touch him, but in reality, he's he's only a pawn in God's plan. And today, Caesar Augustus is remembered by most of us not because he was the son of God who turned Rome into a city of marble, but because he just happened to be emperor when the Son of God, the promised anointed king of Psalm 2, came to earth. Not on a throne in Rome, but in a crib of hay in the little town of Bethlehem. So, how should we respond to this? What is God calling us to do? That's where Psalm 2 ends. Let's look at the final verses. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The psalm ends by addressing the kings and rulers of the earth, They're the same ones who are plotting treachery in verse 2. Wise up, it says, you've been warned. Instead of plotting treason, serve the Lord. And take refuge in him. And kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. What, what does that mean? Kissing the sun here is not an act of intimacy. It's an act of submission. And I want to show you something really cool. Uh, this monument up here on the screen is called the Black Obelisk of Shalmaneser. Okay, it's about six feet tall. so a little, little taller than me. And it was discovered in 1846 in what is today northern Iraq. And it dates to the time of the Assyrian Empire, the 800s BC. These ancient monuments were commissioned by kings to commemorate important national events. So this monument here, you can see it's covered in pictures that depict these important events uh, during the time of uh, the Assyrian Empire. And this monument uh, from, from that ancient empire, it actually depicts on one of these pictures. Uh, an, an Israelite king who's mentioned in the Bible. It's believed to be the earliest depiction of a person who's mentioned in the Bible. That's pretty cool. So here's, here's the image blown up so you can see it. The guy who's standing just left of center there, uh, in the middle left of center, is uh, Shalmaneser III. If any of you are native Assyrian speakers, you can p- correct me on the pronunciation, by the way. <laughs> that's, that's the king of Assyria there. And uh, the guy who's bowing down at his feet, that is Uh, the inscription above identifies him as Jehu, who was one of the kings of Israel. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. So you see what he's doing? He's kissing the feet of the emperor of Assyria. He's bowing down in an act of submission. And the inscription above it also identifies all the gifts that he brought to that king as tribute. So unfortunately, King Jehu of Israel is not kissing the son of Psalm 2. He's kissing the feet or giving his allegiance to to the king of Assyria because that seems like the prudent thing to do. After all, Assyria was a powerful empire, much stronger than the nation of Israel at the time. But that image, it shows the posture that Psalm 2 is asking of us. Kiss the son. Give your allegiance to him, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. That phrase, the way, it's another connection, by the way, back to Psalm 1, which told us that there were two paths or two different ways. The path of the righteous that leads to blessing and the path of the wicked that leads to death. The way off of the path of death and onto the path of life is to kiss the sun. And the warning here is stark. It says, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, wait a second. Doesn't the Bible say that God is slow to anger? And there's some debate about how to translate this phrase. And if you look at other translations, you'll see they they do it a little bit differently. I think the image here, and you'll see this in some of the translations, is, is more like his fuse is getting short. And that's perfectly consistent with God's being slow to anger. God has been patient with these rebellious kings, but his patience is wearing thin. And God won't allow their plotting and injustice to go on forever. He he will act. And the time to submit, to kiss the son is now. God is calling these kings and us to serve the Lord and take refuge in him. That's the message at the end of the psalm. Let's look at the closing line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge, find shelter in him. In the midst of the stormy chaos of of kings and nations plotting against the Lord, God says, find shelter in me. Come to me and I will give you rest. And there's a curious line in verse 11 that that I rushed past. It said, rejoice with trembling. Rejoice. Doesn't, Doesn't that seem out of place in this psalm? Think about it. The Psalm starts with kings plotting rebellion against God. And, and God responds with mocking and judgment. His spe- he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The sun will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like pottery. And the kings are warned, says, God has been patient, but his patience is wearing thin. And what are they to do? Serve the Lord and rejoice. Rejoice. Why would they rejoice? the only reason I can think of is grace. These rebellious kings can rejoice because our God is a gracious God. The kings deserve wrath, but with God, there's always an opportunity to turn and find grace. And when God's grace is given to rebels who deserve only wrath, there's only one proper response, rejoice. Rejoice because God has provided rescue and life to those deserving condemnation and death. And if we're honest, we should see a bit of ourselves in the kings of Psalm 2. We're not always happy with God's rule, are we? How often do we try to do our things our way instead of his? Now, I know your word says this, but I want to do that. Or we go into our, our corner and make our own plans, never consulting God, because we know what's best for ourselves, right? But God reminds us that, that his grace is extended toward us as well that refuge in the midst of chaos is found only in Him. So serve the Lord and kiss the Son and rejoice. And what about our crazy world? You know, the unpredictability of our, of our new normal. Well, Psalm 2 and the biblical story as a whole reminds us not to put our confidence in the stability of economies and regimes, but in the God who made a promise to send His Son and who did send His Son and his Advent season reminds us each year who will send his son again. Let's pray to him now. God, I admit that I am an anxious person in an anxious culture. And I'm so tempted to put my hope in the predictable rhythms of my world. And when those things seem to fall apart, I find myself standing on shifting sand. God, help us to remember this picture that we get from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 that while kings and rulers and nations and peoples plot in vain, there is never a moment when you are not in control. So this morning, this week, this Advent season, we give our worship to the anointed king, the son of God in whom is grace and pardon. Help us to take refuge in him. Amen.